What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What does John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. Hello, welcome to Theology Answers. Today, we want to tackle an issue that's really fresh in our world. In our day, there is a large display of people, no matter where you look, defending the faith. Whether it's online, in the street, at the coffee shop, or even in the local assembly of believers, what we call the church. But especially on social media. Now, what we don't want to talk about is their attitudes, etc. But I often get the at the at the question, excuse me, asked of me: Why should we defend the faith at all? Shouldn't Christians just tend to themselves and study the Bible to themselves? I mean, even on the street, when some of our men are out open air preaching, we get a lot of feedback from many different people. But we get the most criticism from those professing Christians who say, well, we appreciate what you're doing and we uh, agree with what you're saying. We just don't think you need to be outside preaching the gospel. And so I guess the question that we want to ask today in this episode is, you know, what are we supposed to do in regards to sharing the faith or defending the faith? Or more clearly, what does the Bible teach about apologetics? Who is to do it? Why is it commanded? And then we'll go from there and ask the question, what areas are worth defending when it comes to apologetics, and what are some of the major problems coming against the church today? So as we get started, I'll let Brother Eddie go ahead and speak to that, since this is sort of his cup of tea. Yeah, I think it's um, not only is it one of the uh, more important doctrines that we find in terms of commission for the church that we find in the New Testament, but it's one of the most neglected areas uh, particularly in the church. And I say in terms of importance, it is um, commanded of all. Uh, Jude 3, writing to the entire church, he says, contend or argue earnestly for the faith that was once for all, uh, hapax, once for all, handed down to the saints. That means there's one faith. There's not new revelations of faith. There's one faith, and it was handed down. And we're supposed to contend earnestly for that. And also our our standard passage in First Peter. And of course, even if Jude was the only one, it's still it's still commandments for the Christian. Peter writes to all Christians like Jude uh, to always uh, be um, be ready and make a defense. Always be ready to make this defense. Uh, this, uh, that's where we get the word apolo, apologetics, uh, apologia. Always be ready to do, to, the, to do this to everyone who asks, to give a logos or a reason for the hope that's within you. So what we find here in these two uh, passages to the entire church is we're called to give defense. That means a biblical refutation. And Peter says, give an account. And the word is logos, to give a, a reason, a positive affirmation for your faith. So we see apologetics is twofold. And we see through scripture, you know, um, where is it? Philippians 1 7, Paul says, um, I'm in prison for the apologetics and confirmation of the gospel. Uh, Philippians 2 7. That's why he was in prison, for his apologetics. And it's just very interesting that today, uh, and you know this probably far more than myself, uh, you're ridiculed if you engage in any kind of apologetics. But your question is a very good question. You know, where do we draw the line? In what sense do we give apologetics? Do we just, you know, uh, we're at 
Ralph's Market. We just want to give apologetics to every checker and, and, you know, every person we see and grab them by the lapels and say, you know, let me defend my faith to your brother, you know, or, or, or something like that. Right. Um, no, you know, and I think that's a, that's a very good issue, um, that Christians need to address. Very important. Amen. Well, when we think about apologetics, a lot of people try to differentiate, and this is something that I've always tried to help people understand. There, there is a method and a means to apologetics in the context of just defending the truth. And we see a lot of that in, in the cults and world religions. People say, well, there's apologetics. But I'd like to make the point that apologetics, if we, by itself, is a thing. But really, it is part of the action of evangelism. It is part of what we do. Well, if we think about evangelism, we think about all the Pauline epistles, all of the apostolic missionary journeys, and we see they went to city to city to city to city in order that they may teach the gospel as it was given to them. Like Paul would take personal possession of it. He said, this is my gospel. <laughs> I've been made a minister of this gospel, and this is my gospel. And and people receive the gospel. This is evangelism. This is the sharing or the, the doing and the teaching of the evangel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ and his finished work of atonement and justification of his people. Uh, so then when we see the other area of that is as they went into these areas, as they went into those um, uh, you know different cities and they begin to preach the good news, just like we see in Matthew uh, 28, where it says, go make disciples by teaching them to what? Obey Christ. That means to believe, first and foremost, in the gospel of Christ and in the person of Christ. And so we see them doing the work of evangelism, and then it was just natural in that context for them to then do apologetics, like we see Paul in uh, with the Romans, we see Paul with the Athenians and, and other places, uh, Peter and the Hebrew people. Even the writing of the letter to the Hebrews is an apologetic against Judaism. And so from that point of view, I think that we all need to remember that apologetics is part of. It's not a separate thing that people are called to. And I think you made that, I, I like the way you said that, we're all commanded. If the Bible was written for us, and we are under it, we are commanded to be ready, to give a reason, to be able to explain what we believe. And in all honesty, um, apologetics is really teaching the truth of Scripture in a way that counters the falsehood of Scripture and the lie right. that the world would do in the twisting of Scripture. Uh, I didn't mean to say falsehood of Scripture, but the falsehoods claimed of Scripture, etc., Right. And, um, right. you know, Paul Paul was. He was imprisoned for everything, and that was the guarantee that he had. And I find today that maybe it is why so many people don't share the faith, and it's probably why so many pastors and churches do not have that as part of their DNA, and that they don't want to, to feel the ridicule. They feel like they're better evangelists. They feel like they're better evangelists when they're not being confrontational. And I don't see that in the narrative of the New Testament. Matter of fact, I believe that the narrative of the New Testament says that it's not we who are confrontational, but it's the gospel that's confrontational. Uh, that, I mean, that's at least how I see it. How do you, how do you think with how I've stated that? What what would, your, what would be your thoughts? Yeah, abs- absolutely. I agree. It's the gospel that's confrontational. And um, I think that's one of the main reasons. I, I see it as twofold. The main reasons why Christian pastors, too many of them, not all of them, there's some great, solid guys out there. That's why too many of them want to hide the, this area of confrontation and speaking out and warning people and so on and so forth, as the apostle did and as were commanded, because they know that um, it's going to cause problems and it's going to cause disputation among the, the, the congregants. It's going to cause division and all these things. But <laughs> it's amazing. And sometimes I, I would ask, what, how serious do they take scripture? I mean, these are the qualifications of a pastor and they're the commandments of a Christian. Interesting when Paul was in Athens, even in the narrative literature, we see the apostles practicing apologetics. When Paul was in Athens and he was waiting, uh, he, he was waiting for his, his companions. I think it's Acts 17. In, um, I believe verse 16, it says his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Yes. And if you're not provoked, 
you know, and, and if you're not, if you don't feel anything in the face of false doctrine, you know, I, I question your seriousness and your faith, or if, if you really have a faith, um, because the next verse, we, we read that um, as a result, he's so he was he was um, reasoning the, the Greek term dia lago. He was arguing in the synagogue with the Jews and God fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace with uh, every day to those who happened to be present yes. because the spirit in him was provoked, it says yes. his spirit was provoked. So as a, a God-devoted Christian, he was provoked at the idolatry. And we need to be provoked when we see idolatry in doctrine or anything else. And if we're not provoked, we got to really examine our, our, our base doctrine and our theology and what, you know, how serious is our commitment to the Lord. Right. So I yeah. agree with, you know, I, I think you're, you're absolutely right. We need to... And as, as you know, as a pastor, you, you preach, you know, you preach accurately and solidly and you have the attitude, let the chips fall where they may, you know, I'm going to preach what's in scripture, you know, as did the apostles, you know, and I, and I think, you know, all the Christian leaders, um, or Bible study teachers or anyone in who's in a teaching capacity must have that same attitude. Right. You, you make a great point there, brother Edward, is that. You know, pastors, teachers, Sunday school teachers, whatever, if you're teaching the scripture, I have, uh, we are bound to teach it accurately and authoritatively, and we're bound to teach it holistically. Uh, I've recently had a conversation with someone who said that, you know, they, they are teaching a class, or they have someone in their church who's just started teaching a class, but they're, they're shying away from reformed things. And when you think about reformed things, I'm like, what do you what do you mean reformed things? You mean reformed things like justification by faith alone, or you mean reformed things like Jesus is is God in the flesh? You mean reformed things like God is sovereign over all things and over all the volition of man? Do you mean reformed things about having one faith and one Lord and one baptism and one Spirit, one gospel? Uh, what what do you mean? And they didn't know how to answer that question, but ultimately what it meant is that they were just going to teach through Scripture and only touch on those parts of Scripture that actually gave some type of human ability to walk in a manner that somewhat gave a semblance of that command. For example, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Uh, people actually teach that and think that people can follow it. And they think that people can follow it. And when I say stuff like this, a lot of times people say, well, you're an antinomian. I didn't say you weren't held accountable for not loving your neighbor. However, the scripture is very clear that we cannot love our neighbor as we are commanded to, in the manner in which we're commanded to. So even all the love that we have for our neighbor is not enough love to justify the holy requirement of God in that command. So then we therefore believe in the gospel of grace that Jesus Christ has loved his neighbor as he should, so therefore he fulfilled that before the Lord. And when he died on the cross, he died for the sin of us not being able to love our neighbor. And even more so, he died on this cross to satisfy the sins of when we hated our neighbor and murdered our neighbor and stole from our neighbor. And we we, we don't we see a a lack of um, authoritative teaching in the church today when it comes to apologetics. And it's no wonder why Christians can't defend what they believe because most of them and you and i've had this conversation many times before brother most of them are not even aware of what they do believe on the simple things and on the essential things and most importantly on the necessary things yeah i I, you know as you were speaking i'm i you know both of us have have traveled extensively in churches and and, um being in ministry been in ministry for a long time a lot of times people just they don't want to offend anyone they, they really don't i don't say that cavalier because we always hear that but the fact is um they don't in which they actually do the opposite they they come with flattering speech and all these things and i was just uh remembering first uh, thessalonians chapter two you know paul says we came bold we we didn't speak with air he says we never came with flattering speech or some kind of he says mm-hmm. with a, a pretext for greed God is a witness. He said, we don't, we don't seek the glory of men. You know, that's not why we came. And I think if every evangelist and every pastor had that attitude, their teaching would be different. If they yeah. didn't preach because of greed, if they didn't preach because of they want to, you know, uh, influence friends and, uh, um, 
and really um, they didn't have the mentality of pleasing every single person there and staying away from you know reform doctrines or essential doctrines which seem boring to a whole lot of pastors out there um, they would preach differently I think um, Paul says uh, Galatians 1.10 he says if I, if I seek to please men I'm not a slave to Christ and I think that sums it all up if, yes. if our endeavors to please men we're, we're not slaves to Christ can't we just preach the gospel and do our job that's what we're called to do. Teach yes. the good news and the bad news. That's our job. Yes. That's right. That's right. That's a good word there, brother, I'll tell you. And it, it, it's difficult. And that, that brings me to a lot of things to talk about. And we'll have to we'll have to have a thousand shows uh, to get all this stuff out. But when, when we think about what pastors ought to be doing, and I know mainly our audience, who knows what it is or what it's going to be or what the Lord may make it be in the future, but... For those of you who listen to this podcast, you're either a pastor or you know someone who is a pastor or you're a member of a church or maybe you're an unbeliever and you soon will either be a pastor or a person who is in the congregation under a pastor. And so I'll just say if you're a pastor, you need to listen. You need to listen to what we're saying because we're not giving our opinion. Just as you said, Edward, we're not here to please men, and it doesn't matter if people delete these audio recordings and never listen to us again. But we have a duty under Christ and by the authority of Scripture to show what the Bible teaches that a man should be doing when he has been gifted the oversight of the, of the sheep of Christ for whom he died. It is not a game. It is not a social construct. It is not something that we do from a business point of view. But we are to defend the faith of Christ for the sake of the souls of the elect and for the sake of their joy as they traverse this life, as they work out their salvation by faith alone in Christ. And there's so many times people uh, will, will tell me that, you know, I don't, I don't defend the truth of marriage. I don't think it's necessary for Christians to uh, defend the truth of marriage. And I was talking with one brother about this several years ago, and he even said to me, and I'm not indicting him, I'm just showing you how easy this is for us to get caught up in if we're not careful. He said to me that he was teaching out of a particular passage of Scripture that actually called out homosexuality as sin. And it wasn't even the topic of his sermon, but it was related because he was talking about marriage. And when he was reading through the text and he was talking about these things, there were two men on the front row of the fellowship that got up and left because they were offended that he called homosexuality, actually that he quoted scripture when he called it sin. And he said to me these words, he said, if I had known they would have been there, I would have bitten my tongue. I would have not said that. Uh. And when he, when I, I'm like, why would you do that? He said, well, I, and, I, and it's been a few years, but to paraphrase, he basically came back and said, well, you know, I think we could have reached them had they not been offended. But what people don't realize is that to defend the faith is to offend the apostate. It's offensive to me. When God showed me that everything that I was was wicked, and when God's word came to me with life, it was an offense to me. The gospel was offensive to my flesh, but it was a fragrant beauty to my soul. Because the flesh still fights, but the soul is made alive. The spirit gives life, but the letter kills. That's how Paul puts it. That's good. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think, unfortunately, I, I see this, the problem as twofold. A lot of folks, um, it, it's almost one extreme or, or the other extreme. It, it's either um, one extreme is to uh, want to defend every single thing, um, but it, it, in, in a very vociferous way. Which is not good because, again, the, the two principles of the first century church is love and doctrine. We love, but we're very bold in our defense. But we don't want to be pejorative. We don't want to, um, you know, do it at the sake of, of, um, start making personal attacks. I mean, the apostles, you know, they were just very bold in their, in their presentation. And they were very passionate in their presentation. Um, they offended everybody, you know, we, we can't be afraid of offending. Remember when Paul spoke to the, um, he got the last time he was going to see the Ephesus leaders, he gathered all of the elders, the pastors, mm -hmm. so he can, um, you know, really give a, a farewell address because he would never see these people again. That's what he said. Yeah. And he, and remember in verse 26, this is the point I think you were making when he says this day, I'm innocent of, of the blood of all men. 
because I didn't shrink from declaring you the whole, if I can paraphrase, the whole scripture. You know, I didn't, I didn't leave out parts that were offensive. I declared everything to you. And then he tells the, the, it's probably alluding to, uh, Ezekiel 33. When you see the sword coming, you don't warn the people. God will hold their blood on your hands. We have an obligation as Christians to warn the people. Yes. And it's just amazing today. People, no one wants to name names. I mean, what do you, how, how would you respond to that? Um, you know, we shouldn't name names. We can talk about the bad doctrine, but don't name the names. You know, we don't need to name the names of the false teachers. Just, mm-hmm. you know, we can maybe mend What do you think about that? Um, I get well, that friction all the time. I, I used to get all of that. And, and ironically, I would even talk about, you know, generalizations of false things and false practices. And people would come up after service and say, you're talking about my friend or you're talking about my No. But there have been times I've mentioned names and, and people have always said, well, you shouldn't mention names. Well, here's a, here's a reason to mention names. Um, well, first, let me say why an area that I don't think we should mention names. We don't need to mention names where people aren't aware of names. For example, if, if there's a false teacher that I met six months ago and he's on the obscure corner of the Internet somewhere and I met him in Augusta or I met him in, you know, in Oakland and nobody knows him, I would be foolish to say, don't look at this guy because then everybody's going to go look at what they shouldn't look at. But when you know that people are mainstream and you know, especially from a pastoral perspective, that when I if I walk around town or I or I in the, you know, in the fellowship with the saints, I hear people or I see people online or or I I have conversations or even see the book. I see a book of a heretic sitting on the coffee table of a church member. I owe them as their brother and especially as their pastor. I owe them the truth that that particular teaching, although it may be fond to them it may give them some feelings that they enjoy and they may equate those things that truth or those feelings with with um something that god is revealing of himself or some truth that they may think is biblical i owe it to them to show them that it's wrong it's wrong because it will lead them down a path i use the shack as an example the shack was a book that came out years and years ago and and uh, then they've most recently, in the last few years, made a movie about it. Well, I, I received a lot of calls from people who I love and care for dearly, and they would say, "Have you read The Shack?" And I would say, "No, I haven't read The Shack." So I went on, I went to the bookstore that afternoon, and I got it. And I read The Shack in an hour and five minutes, and wow. I was horrified. I wept, and I was horrified because the people that I was speaking with, they had for the first time in a decade, were overjoyed at the Lord. And his glory and his beauty and his love as illustrated by the shack, not as illustrated by the scripture. So I had to go on the warpath. I had to tell people this book and this author and this slash so-called theologian is wrong. And people would say, well, you shouldn't do that. So now to your question, what do I think about it? I think you have to call names. Paul did. Paul told Timothy to watch out right. for these guys. Paul told Timothy that Demas had fallen in love with the world and he left. Jesus and Paul and others teach that there is a time where church discipline results in the excommunication of a particular person or person so that therefore they will have to be named so that they are ostracized in the community of our lives until they repent of their sin and, and thus show that their confession is actually in line with their, with their lives. And then we also see the fact that that many, many times, what did Paul do when he wrote the New Testament? Every letter is about some particular group of people. Uh, and I know you don't see a whole lot of names, but everywhere you look, you see this group of people. You see the Judaizers. You see the circumcision party. You see the <laughs> you see the uh, the Gnostics. You see this. You see that. You see people who are uh, saying the resurrection has already taken place. And, and these apostles are very stern. They say, these people, mark them, warn them, and then have nothing else to do with them. So how are we to do that if we don't know who we're talking about? Do we just come up from a pastoral perspective and say, hey, if you ever think about something you hear and it sounds a little odd and it sounds a little touchy-feely or you hear this phrase, then then run for the hills. Well, what if it's an issue like a T.D. Jakes or a Joyce Meyer who may have a lot of good pragmatic teaching that somebody might listen to. For, and when I say pragmatic, I'm not talking about biblical. I just mean pragmatic. Right. It may be some good counsel for somebody psychologically to be able to walk as a good mother. 
Um, and they listen to it for years, and all of a sudden they're indoctrinated very subtly into false theology and false doctrine. They learn about a false god, and Lord help if they ever trust in that false god. And so mm, I think that it's right. very... But at the same time, I can't pound the pulpit, stomp my feet, snarl, spit, and scream, and act like an idiot. And when I do that, I become an obstacle. I become a stumbling block. And I'm not teaching anyone. I'm really just ranting and raving. And I think there's a difference. Like you mentioned a minute ago, Edward, is that Paul was provoked in his spirit by false doctrine. And you know what he did? He didn't do what Jesus did because Jesus had the authority as God to go in and cleanse the temple. People say, well, see, Jesus cleansed the temple. We can act like that. Paul went in prayerfully and began to teach people truth. He began to evangelize and even utilizing their idolatry to point to the reality of the gospel. Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, what really, you know, in, in saying what you just said, we, we also see it so clearly when Jesus was on earth, he, he had a particular role to fill. Number one, he wasn't there to teach every single nut and bolt of doctrine. He left that up to his apostles. That's yes. why we, you know, we have... That's why we have the epistles. And Jesus really came for one reason, to die. You know, that's why he came. So sometimes people confuse two things. As you were speaking, I was thinking of two things they confuse um, uh, on two issues. Number one, they confuse narrative literature of the Gospels and what, how Jesus treated the Pharisees and didactic teaching, wh- what we're instructed to do. And then number two, people will confuse uh, apologetics, defending, naming names, so on and so forth, with mm-hmm. with not loving. They 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 don't. It's a false dichotomy. And you mentioned um, specifically the the groups that deny the resurrection, they, or they said it already happened. Hemonias and Philetus in Second Timothy right. too. Paul, we know about Hemonias and Philetus because Paul mentioned it to Timothy. So Timothy can warn the church about these people. Correct. And in fact, when we first hear about uh, Hemonias and, and Philetus, we, uh, I think back in First Timothy, Paul says, um, t- talks about Alexander too. You know, Alexander the metal worker did me great oh, yeah. harm. Heard me, but in first Timothy, me terribly, yes. Yeah, so he mentions his names there. But in First Timothy one twenty, he says, Hemonias and Alexander, whom I handed over to Satan. You know, so they'll be they'll be taught not to you know say these blasphemous things. Now he told Timothy this, so Timothy can communicate because we know Timothy wasn't a pastor; he was more of a, uh, a an interim or, or a trainer of sort. He was training the pastors on you know on Paul's authority. So Timothy was warning people by naming names. It's very unloving, I think. You mentioned Joyce Myers and. and um, and there's many like Joyce Myers who are just teaching more of a get your best life today. This is your yes. best life today. Like a Joel Osteen, Joyce Myers, all these people. And the issue, you probably would agree with me, it's, it, the issue is not if they're saved or not. But the issue is the, the damaging doctrines they're teaching. Yes. Even if they, you know, that's not even, that's a, that's not even the issue that I'm looking at. If they're saved or not, I'm looking at, are they teaching damaging doctrine? Are they uh, impacting in a very negative way, teaching Christians what God said when God never said it, teaching Christians that God promises when God never promised it? That's the problem more in, yeah. if they're if they're saved or not. It doesn't matter really in this sense. People are, are not being discerning. And uh, they get mad at you if you mention their favorite person, but hey, this this is it's a most unloving act if you don't if you know that sword's coming and you don't warn the people, God will hold their blood in your hands. Yes, yeah. you know, Lord help us. Well, that brings us to part two of this question. Really, um, something that we've been asked to talk about is you know regarding these people who teach falsely, regarding the need because we've we've established you know. Roughly, we've established the idea that the Bible teaches and commands apologetics in defense of the faith. The Scripture also yes. teaches. The Scripture also teaches that you know how we should do it and in what manner we should do it. So we we have those things. But now, I guess the question will be for our listeners: you know what what damages the church most in our contemporary times? What areas are really worth defending? And what are some of the major, I know we could talk for years about this, but what are some of the major problems coming against the church today that are worth defending? Well, you... 
I I see one one of the major problems as uh, twofold. Um, number one, how God saves. Um, and as you know, there within the church, there's you have two decidedly different uh, different views on how God saves. Is it God and man, or is it God alone? And now let me tell you, as I see it, theologically, how you believe God saves and who you believe Jesus died for affects, will affect most every dimension of your evangelism, of what you yes. say. Yes. Because if you believe it's cooperation, if you believe that Jesus died ambiguously, it was a universal atonement, and you just, you know, he's begging everyone to, he's, he's really the beggar on the cross, and he's wanting everyone to come and all these things, and it's up to the man to decide, well, you're going to, you're going to, evangelize according to your theology you're going to start giving him a, a somewhat of a a good well-meant offer of kind of a friendship evangelism because you don't because it's up to you it's up to the man's decision it's up to you to lead, lead him to christ it's going to affect the way you present doctrine yes absolutely. and the second sec, and the second issue i see is um Actually, there's more but one of the second issues also is is um how you hear god do you hear God from Scripture alone, or do you hear God, and you can explain this, do you hear God by extraneous sources? So I see those two as a huge problem in the church. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I tell you, we could, um, we, volumes could be written on the on that second thing especially. All volumes have already been written on the first one. <laughs> but volumes <laughs> could be written on the second one. You know, sola scriptura is the primary yes. and foundational pillar of, of the Protestant Reformation. It's not something that was created. It was what t- Scripture teaches of itself, that it's authoritative. Paul goes goes so far to not just teach that Scripture is authoritative because it is the breath of God. It is breathed out by God and is useful for all success that we could possibly desire in ministry. Uh, it is useful for salvation. It is useful for all things. It is necessary and effectual for these things. But Paul goes on to say on the smaller points, on the issues of application, when he commands like he does to the Corinthians, and he says anyone who does not regard these words, do not consider them a brother. So mm, when right. we look at the Scripture uh, in, that re- in that regard, it's really interesting that you would answer those things first and foremost because, I mean, they are the foundation that leads to so many other things. We see the Arminian, free will, Pelagian-type theology that comes out of the issue that you deal with first the first thing saying you know how does god save and for whom did christ die uh we see you know evangelism i know in my own life when i was a young boy how evangelism was taught to me is that god is desperate to save every single person and Mm -hmm. and it might say people might say well that that pushed you that pushed you to be more evangelistic no i'm more evangelistic now because then i was desperate and I wasn't desperately sharing and defending the faith of Christ and teaching Scripture. I was desperate calling people to follow a plan that I had been taught that would get them to the salvation that I desperately hoped they would find. And it wasn't even the gospel. It was a plan. It was an action on their part. It was a decision in their mind, not what the Scripture teaches. But I tell you, that second one, how do we hear from God? Um, Oh my goodness! If if we if we settled that in the world today, brother, we we would put Christian bookstores out of business. I, I do believe. Yeah, one of the one of the worst ways is presented by one of them. In fact, it's, it's very ironic. The church that I'm sitting at right now, because I go to their little cafe, as I told you, because they're they're you know Starbucks coffee bean. None of these places have it. It's called uh, the oat milk latte. They actually use oat milk. Oat milk latte, and uh, I can't get it anywhere else. Anyways, and it's it's somewhat quiet, but it's connected to a large church I was just telling you about called Shepherd of the Hills in Chatsworth, California. And um, it's connected to their bookstore. And this is one of the worst ways, I think, to say you hear from God. And one of the books, one of the popular books is by Sarah Young. I think it's called oh, yeah. The Jesus Calling. Yes. And she... Now, she's changed her book so many different times, like she makes it up as she goes along. However, her methodology that she says she uses is she has a script in one hand with a pen, and she kind of meditates, and she hears the words of God, and she starts writing yeah. you know, what she hears. Now, 
what is that called in the occultic world? Yeah. No, it's called auto writing. It's a very occultic system. But why is it here at this so-called Christian bookstore? Why is it at all the bookstores? Because that's what the people want. They don't want to read. They want supernatural. They want tangible stuff. What did Jesus right. say? You, you, you perverse generation. You're always looking for a sign. Yeah. Wow. It's crazy. The, the assertions, how, you know, the methodology how people are hearing God these days. Hmm. Well, when we when we think about these things, brother, we've got uh, we've got a lot of work to do. But in that same thinking, I know that what we've talked about today can stir some people in different directions. Sometimes it'll stir people toward anger; they'll be upset with us because we dare talk about people like Sarah Young. We're not talking about them; we're stating that which is obvious uh, because they put it out for publication. When if I this podcast is 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 out for publication. People can listen to it and disagree with it and commentate on it. They can make memes out of it. You can do whatever you want to do. You can submit it to the Satanist church if you want to for them to hack up and make a sound wherever they want. It's When something is public, it is for public use. And when people who claim to be writing for God, claim to be speaking for God, or claim to be teaching about God, the church has an obligation, and we have the freedom in our world for people or in our country and culture for people to say what they want to say. But so do Christians, and Christians are had rather see. And this is this is a generalized statement, but it seems it appears that so many professing Christians would rather eat in peace at a restaurant than go up and sit down and have a conversation with someone who was reading a book written by Sarah Young. Uh, I've done that several times. Uh, with the shack and Sarah Young's book, Jesus Calling, and she's written some subsequent books on that as well, as well as when I see, you know, Your Best Life Now, and, and even some some books that are written by some evangelicals that will remain nameless in this podcast, but we'll have a, we'll have a podcast uh, episode that we'll talk about the heretical evangelicals maybe in the future. But for now, I mean, I, I would see that, and I would sit down, I would engage with these people. They they enjoy the conversation. Hey, what are you reading? Hey, I've heard about that, and that's a true thing. Tell me about it. Well, what does it mean? Uh, you know, what what does it mean to you? What have you gotten out of that? What have you seen? And you know what I've done in that? Instead of saying, "Well, that's a her- a heretical book. That's a terrible book," I would take my scripture that I have with me. And I carry my Bible with me almost without fail by the Lord's grace everywhere I go, not digitally, but in print. And I open it up and I show it to somebody. I said, you know what the Bible really says about that? And I show them here. And I'll take them to John's Gospel. And I'll take them to the book of Colossians. And I'll take them to the letter to the Ephesians. And I'll take them over the New Testament. And I will show them the beauty of Christ. And I will show them the power of God through Jesus Christ. And I will show them the Gospel of grace. And what happens is, when I do that, I have not said one thing negative about what they're reading. I've asked questions and then I've answered them with Scripture. And Two things happen typically. Most of the time people say, I've really enjoyed this conversation. You give me something to think about. And and then sometimes people will say, wow, this book doesn't teach that. And no matter what, no matter what they say, it doesn't matter because God's word has already been given. The truth has already been proclaimed. That's sort of what Paul did with the Areopagus when he went in there. And he yeah. said, look at all these idols. You got. You have named everything. Man, you got the grass god and the sun god and the moon god and the cricket god and the tadpole god and every god out there. He said, you're so smart. You've got one up here says to the unknown god. Let me tell you who this is. He's the god of all gods, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. He created the universe and everything in it and so on and so on and so on. Came to earth, lived a holy life, died on the cross and was raised from the dead. And what happened? Most of the people there scoffed at him. But some came up and inquired, we want to hear more about this Jesus you say is the God of all gods. And that's what we do. That's our, that's our task and that's our call. And it goes right back to the first thing that you say plagues our churches today is who, uh, how God saves and who God saves and who has Christ died for. Because I know the truth of that according to Scripture, I can evangelize in that way. And I can leave the result with God. And that's a beautiful thing. And most importantly, you can't believe the gospel if you don't believe the scripture. Right, right, exactly. All of it, you know. Amen. We we talked we we talked about this before. The you know the the sole the five sole um, that came out of the Reformation, but there was also a principle called tota scriptura, and they believe that all of scripture should be taught. And uh, that's something that um. 
we need not only to practice, but we need to believe that all we need to believe that all of Scripture must be taught. Many Christians, yes. leaders in the church, believe in Scripture, but they don't believe all of Scripture should be taught because of whatever the reasons. They might offend their core givers or something, but they can't right. worry about offending men. And a good point, I think we all, uh, evangelists and and all of us, need to, um, I think, uh, embrace all the time, is that when we preach the gospel, our gospel presentation is not merely for converts to make, you know, that, that God uses the gospel as a means to save his people. Yes, that is a reason, but not merely the reason. It also glorifies God, as we've seen with the church of Ephesus in Revelation. It, it also, yes. uh, and first and foremost, really, it's, it's a commandment in spite of the results. I was in one of the largest altar call ministries, as you know, in the 90s. And they would always, the leaders would always ask the question, you know, how many came forward tonight? You know, it was a big altar call ministry. <laughs> you know, I always tell people it was my past life, but it was a big altar call <laughs> ministry. We used to, we used to see close uh, on an average, because it's e- easy to tally, about 350,000 uh, every single year that would actually walk forward. And, you know, James, we, we should do a whole segment uh, soon on just altar calls. There's so much to do on that subject. But anyways... And the question would always be at the end of the week, you know, how many salvations did you see? How many people came forward? And that's uh, that that that's not how you gauge. I mean, you know, that, that's not the the sole reason for for uh, preaching the gospel. It's it's right. uh, not a reason at all for for altar call. I mean, altar calls are unbiblical, but um, we glorify God. Number one, we. Number two, it's commanded of all Christians to preach the gospel. Yes. And number three, it's the normal means God uses to save his people. Those are three solid, biblically uh, biblically solid reasons to preach the gospel. Even if no one comes forward, we glorify God in our accurate presentation. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, it, 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 let's make that our next podcast, actually. Let's, let's make the next one. What are altar calls? What does the Bible say about them? Should we do them, and why not? <laughs> so yeah, I've yeah, given well, the answer. What, what, yeah, what's wrong? What's wrong with them? What's wrong? And, with them? What, um, what know, damage does it do? Yeah. No, I know you've you've done all you've done altar calls. So have I. Oh, you've yeah. probably done more. <laughs> but you know, we both were in altar call kind of churches, or well, with me, it was a whole altar call ministry. Right. And um, so I think we can we can talk we can talk by experience what happens at an mm-hmm. altar call, but yeah, Most let's definitely. why don't the, the the next show and stay tuned because our next show should yeah we we will tackle the issues of altar call and answer the question is it unbiblical or is it non biblical is it you know is there any heresy involved or is it something that's okay because salvation can come through it as long as you're preaching the gospel so does that make it okay and a few other questions that we can. Um, we can ask and, and discuss. I think that'd be a great next topic show. Absolutely. Yeah, let's make that our next show. So you guys listen in and come see us next week on that one, and um, we'll discuss it. And also, just so you can be reminded, if you have a question for us, you can send us a message over at theologyanswers.com, where you can just put your question in, and we'll address it at a, in a future show. Uh, but back to our topic today as we get ready to close this out. Um, you made you made an interesting uh statement there about the preaching of the gospel is not just for evangelism. It's not just for salvation. It also gives glory to God. And here is something very interesting that I'll, that I'll add to that, is that when we, when we share the faith, when we come to the place where we're defending the faith through apologetics, which is part of evangelism, uh, we are telling what is true. We are calling out what is false. We are doing it all with, what does Peter say, gentleness and respect. We are doing it. God is glorified in it even when no one is saved through it. And God is glorified in it especially when people are saved through it. But also, it is not just for, and this is something that I had a really bad time with early on, 20 years ago, when I first became a pastor, is that I believed that the gospel was for the lost and that there was some other extra effort to go into the Bible and to pull out some pragmatism for the sake of the church. 
so that we can mm. teach the saints something new. And you know what the scripture teaches is that the defense of the faith and the sharing of the faith and the proclamation of the gospel glorifies God in that it continues to teach the church the beauty of the gospel of grace. It continues to equip the church to do the work of the ministry. It's not about leadership. It's about the Lord Jesus being proclaimed and taught. So the gospel saves the lost. The gospel equips the saints. And that's what it does. And in both sense, it glorifies God. The Lord says that his word will not return void, for it goes out and does all that it was intended to do. So when I've preached before you know, 10,000 people, as you have, and no one was converted, it was because not because I did wrongly. It's because God the Holy Spirit chose that in that particular moment he would not bring the fruit of salvation to the hearts of his people. Mm. And then sometimes I've seen God move in mighty ways when I hardly ever prepared for a sermon. It was just an impromptu thing. We're standing at the at the counter at, at, at Walmart or, you know, I never go there anymore, but at a store like Walmart or standing at a counter um, or at a laundromat or standing at a coffee shop. I've seen people converted sitting at the table just hearing the truth of the gospel. Before I ever mentioned some type of response on their behalf, God would save them. And God, God's word does all that it intends to do. So that's a very good point, brother. I thank you for bringing that out. Man, well, you know, we're not we're not denying I mean, that it. I mean, that it it feels good. You know, when you see someone come to faith in Christ Amen. Jesus based on a gospel presentation, it really does. Because that's, that's you know, we used to say hell, hell is smaller and heaven's bigger, right? <laughs> you know, but um, I think we have to look at evangelist, evangelism in perspective. It glorifies God. You made an excellent point. Um, simply stated that all pastors should keep repetitiously preaching the gospel to their audience. Because yes. we need to know... Um, I always recall for, uh, Romans one sixteen says the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first Jew, then the Gentiles. So we know the gospel is the normal means God uses. But in yes. verse 15, he tells the Christians, I'm eager, you Christian, you Roman Christians, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you. That's the yes. verb uh, Angelizos use. Why was Paul eager to preach the gospel to Christians? Well, the same reason why you're eager, why I'm eager, to keep preaching the gospel of Christians because they they got to know more accurately. They got to understand more clearly and accurately so they can be powerful proclamators of the gospel of the Son. Amen. 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 Well, there's a lot more that we could talk about, but we're really running out of time. Uh those two things that you brought forward about how God saves and who God saves and how do we hear from God are some of the major problems coming against the church today. I see that most everything, whether it be a false religion, a world religion, a cult, or some heretical outspurt of other types of theological things, uh, you know, like the New Apostolic Revolution or Reformation or whatever they call that, the the Joel Osteens of the world, the the charismania. You know, I'm not picking on charismatics. I'm talking about the charismanias. They're you know they're hearing from right. God and they're seeing the manifestation of things that aren't biblical. Uh, they're, they're doctrinal ambiguity. You know, people want to they want to just talk about love. They just want they want to talk about grace. They want to talk about this, that, and the other. The real issue, people. You know, we haven't really said this, but it, these are the problems. They're worth defending, but the question is why. Why? Because God's glory, God is glorified in the defense of it. But also, what about practically for the church? And as a pastor, it's the thing that is all, it was all, it's always second on my list in my mind. First is, does it glorify God? And then secondly, what is this doing to the church? And what is it doing for the church? And if I were not defending the faith, if I were not teaching the congregation to defend the faith, I am not protecting them. I am a terrible shepherd. I'm a terrible pastor. I'm a terrible overseer if I'm not fighting for the flock in my prayers and study and discipline, and I'm not fending for the flock in my teaching and preparing them to do the work of the ministry. We oftentimes think in our culture that the work of the ministry is loving on folks by giving them something to eat. Nothing wrong with that. 
and, and being there and sending them a card, a card of encouragement. Nothing wrong with that either. But these were not on the minds of the apostles who were running for their lives, being whipped and beaten and shipwrecked and arrested and put in prison for the sake of defending the truth of Jesus Christ. And it, it's not on their purview. It was not in their line of sight. And it shouldn't be in our line of sight either when we think so myopically and so culturally and, 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 and in some sense so blindly that defending the faith is so that we can, we can have our little circles or that we exist as a church so we can have our little circles of kumbaya and casseroles. And when it comes down to it, if I'm not showing the truth of Scripture, standing for it, and giving the church what they need, they are not equipped. And they're not equipped to fight in this world for their faith against people who come after them or people who may disagree with them. But here's the kicker. They're not, they're not equipped to defend and fight for their faith in their own mind and heart when heartache and ridicule and stress and death and disease come knocking at their door. When they lay in the bed at 3 a.m. and they cannot go to sleep because of the worry in their soul, if I'm not teaching and defending the faith as a pastor, I've not equipped them to stand with joy. And so that's sort of what I'll leave with my thoughts today. You have any final thoughts? Uh, no, I... I... I, I think uh, I think the points that we we gave. Um, I think that every Christian evangelist, whether you do it professionally, whether you're in you know you make your living through the ministry, uh, pastor, teacher, or you are the average Christian who wants to glorify God. Number one, we got to be accurate in our uh, theology and our presentation of who the Son is, and we have to be um, we have to have an attitude of slaves of Christ and not care about pleasing men, but yet love and respect all that are the recipient of our message. Amen. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We are glad that you listened. We hope that you will pick up again with us next week as we talk about altar calls. And my name is James Tippins. I pastor at gracetruth.org. And my brother with me, Edward Dalcor, he is the president and founder of Christian Defense Ministries. And you can find him over at christiandefense.org as well. Lord bless you. We hope to see you again. And that's our show for the day. Thank you for listening to Theology Answers. If you have questions, please go to TheologyAnswers.com and put them there. We'll talk about them on here. Again, Theology Answers is a podcast, part of the Christian podcast community at strivingforeternity.org. Lord bless.